Welcome to Real Britain, the podcast of my show on GB News. I'm Darren Grimes and you can catch me live every Saturday and Sunday afternoon from 2 till 3. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up with the best bits here every week. So here we go. Let's talk about the issues that matter to you in Great Britain. Well, folks, I think it's safe to say that it's been quite the taxing week for most of us, with millions of workers around the UK facing a hike in national insurance contributions. At the same time as the worst cost of living crisis for generations tearing inflationary chunks from our bank balances. But we're not talking about that struggle in the press today. We're talking instead about the tax struggles of Akshata Murthy, Chancellor Rishi Sunak's wife. A tax debate that's led to a decision by Murthy to pay UK tax on dividends from her 690 million quid stake in an Indian big tech company founded by her dad. Personally, I think it's wrong to go after a politician's wife. His wife and children aren't sitting around the Treasury table deciding whether or not to hike taxes. And it should be said that there's no suggestion of any wrongdoing here as far as the law's concerned. When it comes to a non-domicile tax status, you still pay taxes on income made in this country and taxes made on income made in India. All that seems to have concluded here is that Murty will pay more tax in Britain and Labour will still claim a win and use this leak to damage the Tory brand as being out of touch with real Britain. This is a wealthy chancellor that doesn't understand opposition politicians will wax lyrical. When a tax status of a private individual is revealed in an unprecedented leak, I minded to say that someone is baying for Sunak's political career here, especially ahead of May's local elections. Local elections that it's safe to say could potentially be disastrous for a beleaguered mid-term government. The line from opposition politicians will be that the chief tax raiser's family has tried to dodge taxes that the rest of were are all forced to pay here in Britain. It suggests a political naivety, though, I think it's safe to say, in Rishi Sunak, that he didn't see this coming sooner. I remember a scene from a Conservative Party conference in which Boris Johnson was handed a non-reusable coffee cup only to have it snatched from his hands by an aide next to him before he could take a single sip from this non-environmentally friendly receptacle and be photographed doing so. Rishi Sunak should have seen this coming. He should have realised that his family's tax affairs would be his non-reusable coffee cup and have had the foresight to actually dispose of it earlier in his career. All safe to say, I think, Labour may well have a point there. I do fear, though, that we're much too quick to lurch to the politics of envy here, forgetting that one person's poverty isn't caused by one person's wealth. Having those fathers that have made vast fortunes in tech companies elsewhere make their lives, seek to make their lives here in this country, it's good for Britain, right, to have the daughters of these wealthy million, billionaires, squillionaires, whatever, actually come and make their lives here. One minister reportedly told The Times that Sunak was simply too rich to be prime minister. Well, I'm sorry, but how rich is too rich? Personal wealth 
doesn't dictate a person's understanding of how things like energy bills and taxes impact those at the very bottom. I dare say, folks, controversially though this may be, that millionaire Sunak understands he gets the plight of a family in County Durham more than most of the middle classes in our country that perhaps are reading certain newspapers. We simply must not become a nation that shuns high-wealth individuals out of envy or spite. Dismissing the wealth as being unable to understand. Many of us feel a deep sense of solidarity with the people of Ukraine, for example, but we've never been there. Yet we'd like to assume that we understand that life must be pretty awful if Russians waltz into a nation with rockets and rifles. I think that should go to really highlight that you don't have to be Ukrainian to understand the plight, even more so than you have to be wealthy to understand what it's like to be poor. Food for thought there, thoughts, folks. I think food for thought. Now, this morning, folks, we heard the Prime Minister speaking exclusively to us on GB News from the Thatcher Room in Number 10 Downing Street about what the UK can do to help Ukraine in their fight. The Prime Minister... Uh, we've got to make sure that Putin fails in his catastrophic attempt to conquer, subdue, destroy another country, a, a neighbouring Slavic country. And the UK is not uh, in the business of in, engaging itself or, or NATO in uh, direct conflict with, uh, with Russia. That would, that would not be sensible. But what we can do is give them maximum uh, economic, uh, political and military support to Ukrainians to defend themselves. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking there exclusively to GB News presenters and Tory MPs Esther McVeigh and Philip Davies. You can find that full interview on GB News's YouTube page and subscribe whilst you're there too. Super fast growing and rightly so. Now to get on to the latest on in Ukraine and what the UK is actually doing to help, I'm joined, I'm delighted to say, by Mark Francois, the Conservative MP for Rayleigh and Wickford. Mark, thank you very much for your company. Now, you sit on the Defence Committee. There was a Russian rocket strike on a train station in eastern Ukraine in which f at least 52 people have been killed with 100 more injured yesterday. Now, in response, the Prime Minister there saying that the UK is sending a further 100 million quid worth of high-grade military equipment to Ukraine's armed forces. Do you reckon we're doing enough? Can we supply any more weaponry? Is there a little more wiggle room here? Well, I, I think that the, the UK is doing all that it practically can. Uh, the Prime Minister is quite right. We should help the Ukrainians to defend themselves. Ultimately, they're defending our freedom too. So we've, we're providing more NLAWs, these superb anti-tank weapons, we're providing more Star Streak um, anti-aircraft, anti-helicopter weapons. There is now talk we're going to provide them with Mastiff armoured vehicles. The, the best way to think of that, we use them in Afghanistan. It's, it's like a super armoured truck. And it's designed particularly to protect the soldiers inside against IEDs and mine strikes. And if, if this war is going to switch 
to the east of Ukraine, to the Donbass, that's a very heavily mined area, or likely to be, so Mastiff would be a very practical vehicle. We're doing, I think, as much as we practically can. The question is, can we persuade our NATO allies to do likewise? I think there's a lot more that some of our NATO allies could do, particularly in terms of providing ex-Soviet equipment, like the Czechs have done, because most of the Ukrainian army is trained to use ex-Soviet kit. So where we can provide them with that, particularly things like tanks and armoured vehicles, that makes sense from their point of view, because they don't have to retrain to use it. You know, they'd be pretty much good to go as soon as they got their hands on it. Yeah, I mean, the, the French, of course, have a presidential election this weekend. Do you actually think, Mark, that France have really shown themselves up here and that they're, what is the French narrative? And by the way, this is across the political spectrum in France, that actually they need to keep communications open with Putin. Do you think actually France have really let themselves and the NATO alliance down? Well, I was critical of European politicians back in 2016 for interfering or trying to interfere in our EU referendum. So to be consistent, I'm not going to try and interfere in the French elections, you know, the first round of which I think is taking place tomorrow. Um, but what I can say is that the Defence Committee on which I serve last week made a flying visit literally to, to Berlin and Warsaw to show solidarity with our NATO partners. And we saw, for instance, that the Germans are increasing their defence spending markedly. We've been criticising them for years for not spending 2% of GDP on defence, whereas France does. Now they've said they're going to do that. They've also announced a fund of 100 billion euros to re-equip the German armed forces, which you know, in some cases have run down. So, you know, having criticised them for years for, for not having done that, I think, you know, it would be churlish not to say that the Germans have done the right thing militarily, although it would take a while for that money to flow through. I think that the, the bigger challenge there is energy security. Yeah. And the Germans have been rather caught short by the Russian invasion because, as the world knows, they're highly dependent on Russian gas. So the Germans are doing a lot to improve their military security, though that will take time, and that will obviously contribute to NATO. I think where we're, we're all pressing them now is what are they doing to improve their energy security so they don't have to keep buying gas from Russia? And I think there, there are more questions to answer. But, you know, uh, we have to hold Putin and his gang to account. So, uh, you know, ultimately we need, you know, we're going to need some form of Nuremberg 2 rather than Nord Stream 2, I think. Yeah, I mean, you also, we also saw news this morning about the Chancellor Rishi Sunak's wife, Akshata Murthy, has now said that she will pay UK taxes on her overseas income. This follows criticism for those just joining us over her non-domicile status where she wasn't required by law to pay. How do you think the Chancellor and his wife have actually handled this, Mark? Well, I, I think there's a policy here that, you know, politicians who stand for public office expect to be criticised by their opponents. At the end of the day, we live in a democracy. We, Russia is now effectively a police state. You know, thank God we don't live in a country like that. We should never, ever take 
living in a free country for granted, Darren. My, my father was a D-Day veteran. He, he drummed that into me when I was a young boy. I've never forgotten it. So, you know, point one, as we were talking about Russia, we live in a democracy where we can have legitimate criticism. That said, I, I, I do think that we should focus on the politicians rather than on their partners. And I think in this situation, um, it would be better to play the ball rather than the man, or in this case, is the woman. Now, this, this has actually damaged the Tory brand. Well, as I, as, as I say, I can, I can only uh, you know, answer as I, as, as I believe. And, you know, there's been, there's been a media pylon here um in the way that it works these days but uh, you know at the end of the day this lady is not the chancellor of the exchequer she's a successful businesswoman in her own right she's not taking uh, uh, economic decisions she's not setting tax rates so i don't really think that the media should be going after her in the way that they in the way that they are but that's just my own view yeah mark can i ask you really quickly in a sentence there Boris Johnson also said, as a nation, we're all getting a bit too fat. Now, there's been moves, I think, in a more sort of patrician Toryism to actually tell the nation that we need to get off our bums, basically, and move out about a bit more. Are you worried about this sort of nanny statism, Mark? Well, I, I'm not normally a, a great fan of what you could call a, a the nanny state down, but I'm on weak ground here because you know I was in the gym the after uh, yesterday, and my PT was telling me I could do with losing a few pounds. So I'm probably not in the strongest possible position to give other people advice on that. If I'm honest to you, <laughs> Mark, thank you very much for your time today. Now, folks, you're with GB News on Telly Online and DAB Radio. Next, we'll be going back to basics. The government says, actually, it wants to privatise Channel 4. Let's go on to that right now. We'll find out what privatisation is as well. So the government has announced that this week that it will privatise Channel 4. I personally was quite excited by this announcement. Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries said that government ownership is actually holding Channel 4 back. Some believe that the quality of Channel 4's programmes would actually suffer from privatisation. So, what exactly does the term privatisation mean? Well, I'm absolutely delighted to say I'm joined by Dr Madsen Piri, who is the president of the Adam Smith Institute. Madsen, hello, thank you for your time today. Now, the Adam Smith Institute, for those that don't know, was very highly influential in the 1980s, the halcyon days of privatisation in our own country. But what, Madsen, does the phrase actually mean in layman's terms? Privatisation means taking something which is in the state sector of the economy and transferring it to the private sector of the economy. Now, in the old days, in the early days of Thatcherism, it was done to make industries and services more efficient and more responsive. It was done in order that they could attract uh, new investment to uh, reinvest in infrastructure that always runs down under state ownership. It was done for all of those reasons, but at the heart of it was Margaret Thatcher's belief that the state really has no business um, owning industry, owning um, services, that that should really be left to other people to do. Yes, and as a private company, who could be the owner? Is it basically anyone with enough money could say, could Donald Trump, for example, Madsen, wild as that would be, say, well, actually, I quite like the look of Channel 4. 
I do think the regulators would have some say if Donald <laughs> Trump were to come along with an open checkbook. Um, in fact, the regulators would obviously have a say in whichever bid it was approved of. Uh, Channel 4 is in, in a, a different position. It is owned by the state, but it's not funded by the state. It's funded from advertising. Now, the intention was always that government ownership of the channel, it was introduced to, to give more competition in broadcasting. It was always assumed that this was a kind of, um, so to speak, uh, infancy uh, period, and that once it was grown up, uh, it would make its way into the private sector. Well, it's, it's a 40-year-old grown up by now, so it really doesn't need um, mother's milk and attention anymore. So I think it is time for it to move to the private sector, and I think it will be more efficient, it'll be more responsive to the public, and it will have a more up-to-date business model. So the Madsen, idea of financing it, financing it entirely from advertising is a bit outdated. They need subscriptions as well. Channel 4 is basically the Prince Harry of broadcasting, and actually it needs to be set free from its father's checkbook and uh, go off to perhaps uh, reap the rewards of a modern broadcasting landscape, Madsen? I, I don't think the Channel 4 executives would, would, would like insults like that levied at them by, by comparing them with Prince Harry. But, but yes, you, you are quite right. It, it's time for it to be on its own, to be free of state ownership and to do the normal commercial things that other channels are doing successfully. It will be able to attract more money by going for subscriptions and that will enable it to fund better programmes. Are there any negatives in your view? I know you are unapologetic about your enthusiasm for privatisation and the good that it did after the 1980s revolution. But are there any negatives as far as the potential fragmentation of industries? If we look at the railways, for example, Madsen, some would argue that higher costs and poorer services are directly linked to privatisation. Oh, no, that's not true at all. Under, under state control, the railways were completely hideous. They, uh, the infrastructure was run, run down by years of, of neglect. Governments have always got better things to do with their money than renew infrastructure. Uh, the, the rail companies now are carrying more than twice as many passengers as before, and they're a lot more attentive to time. They're, they're a lot more attentive to comfort, more modern uh, rolling stock. No, no, it, it's been a great improvement, and that is true for most of the privatised industries. And I'm sure it will be true for Channel 4 as well. Yeah. The major privatisation wave under Thatcher that we've, we've already mentioned there, that opened up much of Britain's industry to competition. And as, as you argue, Madsen, competition actually boosts standards and competitive prices for consumers. That actually created an economic boom in the 1980s. And in your opinion, then, is the Channel 4 privatisation or potential privatisation, touted privatisation, a sign of good things to come for Britain? I hope it is. You asked, were there any negatives? And the only negatives would be if it were privatised in such a way that it reduced competition. So we must be very careful about whose bid we accept and under what conditions and circumstances. If we can do it in a way that increases competition, increases consumer choice, gives the public more input into the type of programmes they want, then it will indeed be a great thing for the future. Just briefly then, uh, what do you say to those who say, well, hang on a minute, there are Labour politicians and others who say, one, I don't want Channel 4 to be snapped up by some foreign investor, and secondly, that actually they're worried about the money that Channel 4 spends on British programming being lost? 
I don't think it will be. I think, as I said, you bring in extra subscription money and they'll have more money to spend. I, I think it's quite likely that they'll be able to spend more money on British programmes if, if their executives think that is what the public want to see and hear. I don't yeah. know whether they do. I suspect they do. And therefore, I would expect to see more such programmes. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Madsen Perry, for your time on the show this afternoon. Now, folks, it's time for our Scrap, Reform and Keep segment. We may be heading for a future in which we see fewer of those high-profile court battles in which celebrities fight it out in public to call time on their marriages and reach a healthy divorce settlement. Remember back in 2008 when Beatles singer Paul McCartney and Heather Mills slugged it out over their divorce. For those listening on radio, we were seeing pictures there of Heather walking out of court waving to journalists. The settlement ended up with Heather getting a £24 million payout. Well, this week, one of the biggest changes in divorce laws in decades has come into force. The launch of no-fault divorces for England and Wales comes after years of campaigning by family lawyers to make the process simpler and end the blame game. Well, I'm joined now by Karen Doverston, who's the interim chair at the Family Law Committee. Karen, before we get on to whether or not you want to actually scrap reform or indeed keep the no-fault divorce laws that have just come in, can you take us back and how have these the, the changes in the law actually been brought about? Why have people been calling for changes to what has been, I think, perhaps embedded in law for quite some time now? You're absolutely right, Darren. It, the law was as of 1973, and it changed on the 6th of April to the new no-fault divorce. So now, if you want to be divorced, you make an application to the court again for a divorce, and you simply sign the statement that says the marriage is over and you would like to be divorced. Now, we're not unique in, in having this in our jurisdiction uh, all around the world. We're, we're one of the last, actually, to move to no-fault divorce in that way. But prior to the 6th of April, unless you'd been separated for a period of between two and five years, if you wanted to get on with it and deal with it, you had to point the finger. One of you had to start the process and the other one had to point the finger and say, you've done, you know, you've done this, you've done that. So it, it's it really very difficult. It just made a, a difficult situation worse in my view. Right. And is this something that you've been hoping for personally would come into force for a while? Yes, 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 I have. Um, I've been a solicitor now for nearly 27 years, and I would say that most of my working life has been spent contributing to campaigns for trying to get this reform through as soon as possible. You can see the harm and upset that it, it causes for um, couples that are coming to get divorced to be told, listen, I'm, you know, you've worked through all the emotional heavy lifting, but now we need to go back again and rake over all that again to put it into a divorce petition. Um, and it, it just opens old wounds. It really does. Am I right in saying that a form of no-fault divorce exists in Scotland then, but these so-called blame rules will remain in force in the likes of Northern Ireland. Are we a disunited kingdom as far as divorce laws are concerned now? 
Yes, it kind of. You, you, you're you're right that we have different jurisdictions. So England and Wales is one jurisdiction. So the law across the border in Scotland is different from the law um, in in England, and the terms that we use are different as well. Um, it, even to the extent of we call the parties applicants and respondents, and they have in Scotland they call them things like pursuers, which is really interesting. I think. And Northern Ireland again is different, um, with slightly different laws to England and Wales. So, yes, you're quite right that we are fragmented still in that way. Karen, what would you say to people that say, oh, hang on a minute, right, I'm hearing what Karen has to say here, and I agree in certain respects, you know, for perhaps struggling women and all the rest of it, it makes sense to absolutely make this process easier. But what do you say to those who say, I'm really worried about the sanctity of marriage? You know, is marriage now entirely redundant you know what's the point in getting married some people might say I, I, I hear what they say I, I don't think that a new piece of law in this way which quite frankly a lot of people don't know about until they come to get divorced I don't think that that's going to destabilize marriage and for a long time now I think it's fair to say certainly during my adult lifetime there's been no pressure to get married if you want to live it with somebody without getting married absolutely fine good for you um, and I think that that so when people do get married, it's their decision that makes marriage important for them. And I think when it comes to issues in a relationship, that doesn't go away. The people that I see have thought really carefully and very hard about what they want to do, uh, about separating the family and moving forward. Yes, so I think... Yeah, I think I know what you're going to say here, and I'm not mystic, Meg, but, uh, you know, I, I think I've summed you up now. But are we going then with, are you keeping it, these reforms? Are you scrapping it or are you reforming it? Where are you at? I am keeping it and keeping I'm looking it. for a little bit more reform on the financial side. So I'm green all the way, babe. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Beautifully put. Karen Doverston there, Interim Chair of the Law Society Family Law Committee. Thank you very much for your time. Yesterday, the Prime Minister was abroad on a foreign trip. The British Prime Minister conducts many trips that often seek to boost British trade, interests and morale overseas. The usually pretty plastic affairs with understandably strict security and precious little actual interaction with real people of the host nation. Often the leaders are there for this obligatory photo op that was barely worth the cost to the taxpayer of transporting the leader and their security detail. However, folks, I think yesterday was different. The one that took place yesterday was quite something. It was a moment, I think, to feel immense pride in British foreign policy. And it was undoubtedly the most extraordinary of Boris Johnson's career. The Prime Minister was yesterday holding surprise talks with President Volodymyr Zelensky in the Ukrainian capital Kiev, And it reminded me why this man and his mop of blonde is a unique politician. Boris has his mojo back. He isn't just another yes man and he's able to be courageous when it matters. 
travelling to Kyiv, undoubtedly heavily opposed by British security and intelligence, that takes real guts and an evident drive to ensure Britain is seen to be taken a stand. Research by the pollster YouGov shows that public opinion is favourable of Boris Johnson's performance since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I dare say these scenes will only bolster that growing respect and admiration from his domestic audience at home. There were scenes of nameless civilians seeking to offer the Prime Minister their thanks and thanks to the whole of the British people for our foreign policy efforts. You'd have to have a heart of stone to not be moved by the scenes and the outpouring of love for Britain yesterday. For many years now, folks, yous are well aware of this, I've no doubt. We've been told that Britain is small and insignificant. We've been told that Brexit would be the end of us as a global power. In our stellar support of the Ukrainian fight for freedom, we've seen, in my view, that this was defeatist nonsense. Thanks to the British people's vote to leave the EU, we've actually been able to announce the removal of tariffs on all imports from Ukraine and the reduction of regulatory barriers between our two nations. These measures mean the might of the British economy will be there to support Ukraine in its recovery. Ukraine can rely upon the British lion's support. This to me, I wonder folks, I wonder if all of those who said we were absolutely nothing without France and Germany holding our hand, we were nothing without the Brussels conglomerate, that we were so diminished as a nation that we barely even existed without the EU club of 27. I wonder folks, I just wonder if perhaps those in Britain, even those Britain sceptic commentators out there, if they look at the scenes of our PM yesterday, for our radio listeners, we've got the scenes running on the screen there of the Prime Minister shaking someone's hand. The actions of our nation and the fruits of our taxpayers' support make me, and I don't know about you, but they certainly make me feel immense pride. Especially, especially folks, when compared to those EU nations that remain dependent upon the teat of Russian gas, with no signs of that abating anytime soon. Power and economic support for bad Vlad's war machine. We may well be small, but we sure do know a thing or two about standing up to belligerent bullies. It's a moment, folks, I reckon, to admire both Britain and Boris for our leading role. Now, folks, the government has announced that it wants to privatise Channel 4. Culture Secretary Nadine Dorries has said that government ownership is actually holding the broadcaster back. Public service broadcasters are required by law to provide content which are considered beneficial to the public good. But in 2022, do we need public service broadcasting? 
It's what I want to find out. Here to discuss, I'm joined by Dorothy Byrne, former head of Channel 4 News and Current Affairs, and Duncan Simpson, who's the research director at the Taxpayers Alliance. Hello to both of you. Thank you very much for your company. Dorothy, can I start with you, please? Can you just make the case for me for public service broadcasting in 2022? Well, you were just talking there, Darren, about us taking a leading role, being a great nation and your immense pride in our country. And one of the things we can be proudest of is that we have probably the best public service broadcasting in the world. And I would argue definitely in Europe. And if you think of those poor people in Russia who are not hearing the truth, they would love to have the system that we have, where you have several absolutely excellent public service broadcasters giving you duly impartial facts about what's happening in Britain and the world and giving it to you from slightly different perspectives, slightly different agendas, because we've got Channel 4 owned by the public, BBC funded by the public, and then also we have ITV and Channel 5 and Sky, absolutely excellent broadcasters too. We are really fortunate in this country to have great news, current affairs and documentary, as well as wonderful comedy about our own country, not just comedy imported from America, and wonderful dramas about our own country and our own problems, like the great dramas that Channel 4 has made, the great comedy Derry Girls and the great drama of uh, It's a Sin. I mean, altogether, absolutely fantastic. Makes billions of pounds every year by selling the copyright uh, and the programmes around the world. So great for our democracy and great for our economy. Thank you, Dorothy. You missed our GB News there, mind, but I'll let you off this once. Duncan, is British Broadcasting... You are a new, wonderful addition. <laughs> well, there we are. Thank you very much. Duncan, is British Broadcasting under threat? As Dorothy says there, we've got a rich tapestry going back many years to be proud of. Are we actually putting that under threat by seeking to privatise or do down our public service broadcasters? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think it's under threat. Um, Channel 4, obviously, numerous stations available to, to viewers here in the UK. I think the ownership structure of Channel 4 is is pretty outdated. Obviously, it was created in the 1980s, as you were saying earlier, with a very specific remit in mind. The public service obligations which they have to fulfil are, are pretty vast. I think a submission that um, Channel 4 did to a Lord's Committee about five years ago showed they had to do over 200 hours of uh, news output and sort of separate current, current affairs as well. Um, there's no particular reason why this kind of programming or brand new programming couldn't, couldn't happen as and when it changes from public ownership um, to, to when it's a privatised model, if indeed that does, that does go ahead um, in the future. And I, I mean, there's also one particular example, Channel 5, for example, and that was taken over by Viacom, I think it was, in 2014. Um, now, when it went through the process and sort of a new buyer was found, obviously there were very large concerns that if there's being bought out by a big American company, then um, a lot of the you know, good quality programming will be dumbed down and um, you know, some of the points which have just been made by the previous guests, that kind of quality of programming would change. What actually happened is that Channel 5 actually exceeded what was the previous public service broadcasting requirement. So I think that's sort of one concern that could be allayed. But I think ultimately, 
it's it's a really peculiar system. You have this in the BBC, for example, every sort of five, I think ten years it is with the uh, with the charter renewal, whereby ministers and senior BBC executives have to negotiate what kind of programming. Not not you know hour by hour what the BBC has to be producing, but in sort of broad strategic terms what they had to be making. I think that's a really odd odd system that in you know twenty twenty two in the UK that politicians aren't you know directly determining what the BBC is producing, but they do nevertheless have you know quite a big quite a big say as to what's being done. So I think you know basically this should be left to um, TV producers and presenters and you know the idea of this basically heavy politicization just isn't appropriate anymore, be it in the BBC or Channel 4. Dorothy, what Duncan's saying there is basically, if and Duncan, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but basically, look, private industry, private broadcasters, they have to be in tune with what the public actually want to see on their television screens. Otherwise, they'll fail. Without the, the teat of the taxpayer, you have to actually ensure that you're catering to the vibrant taste of the British public, don't you? Well... First of all, ITV and Channel 5, most people are not aware, are also regulated and are also required to carry some public service televisioning, uh, television programming. But I think the key thing you have to look at is the amount you would be likely to get. If you look at what Channel 4 does, it's got an hour of really um, expensive news about a third of it international. It's creating terrific programs that you don't get anywhere else, like Unreported World. I mean, it literally does what it says on the tin. Those are stories that you're not seeing elsewhere. It's doing fantastic investigative television, like the program that it did just um, last Monday about what was happening with children working to create Cadbury chocolate. So you would get something, yes, but you would get less. And, you know, you talk about it being peculiar. Yes, it is peculiar the way that we ha uh, have worked out how we have broadcasting in this country. But you know what? It works. And when something works, don't get rid of it. Channel 4 doesn't cost the public a penny, not a penny, and it has contributed to making billions of pounds for this country. Why get rid of that? Dorothy, before I let Duncan respond to that, would you accept that here at GB News, for example, we're free to give everyone a platform to voice their opinions? And actually, it's holding public service broadcasters back by not allowing them to have the same flexibilities and freedoms. I think you want two things, don't you? You want places where people can see opinions, such as the opinion that you just voiced, or in the Daily Mail, or in the Guardian. But we know. Oh, I don't think I'd be found there anytime soon, Dorothy. Sorry. I don't think I'd be found on the pages of the Guardian anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we know from massive research that Ofcom has done over years that the British people really value also duly impartial television news that is the requirement for the main channels. Some people might disagree every now and then, was that really duly impartial or not? Well, there's a regulator they can complain to. Sometimes the regulator upholds those complaints. But as we saw in COVID, the British people really value being able to turn on, I have to admit it, 
mainly the BBC, in a time of crisis and knowing that they're going to hear the duly impartial truth. So, Duncan, would you accept then, I know the Taxpayers Alliance have an Axe the TV tax campaign calling for an end and abolition of the TV licence. Do you accept that we would lose impartial broadcasting? No, I don't. Not in the current situation. Obviously, as Dorothy has enumerated, Ofcom, um, beyond public service broadcasting requirements, you know, it's not just the amount of programming which has to be produced. There are restraints for all broadcasters in the UK at the moment, GB News included, in terms of what they basically can and can't say. I mean, not for, not for word for word, obviously, Darren. Um, so, yeah, the current situation is that the the way that uh, broadcasts and that broadcasts and their news are seen in you know kind of esteemed impartial terms, it's very unlikely to change. Or where to get rid of this? Where to get rid of this entirely? Another thing I say on Channel Four as well. You know, it is indeed the case that the taxpayer is not directly funding uh, Channel Four. It is you know, owned by uh, owned by the government and by us, but doesn't receive um, monies on a on a day by day basis. I mean, ultimately, that's I think actually quite instructive. But Channel Four is basically a very commercially successful operation. I mean, the revenue from advertising last year, I think it was approaching seven hundred million pounds. So it's a huge source of their revenue, basically the main main source of their revenue. So there's no particular reason why that wouldn't function in the future, both in terms of the output that Channel Four is doing at the moment, um, as well as uh, I think it's very unlikely that um, advertisers would you know turn their noses up at a at a company which has suddenly gone private. So um, yeah, yeah, quite an obligation for quite a few of these companies, but there's no particular reason why this impartial nature couldn't change. And, you know, of course, it should be moving to um, private hands at some stage. OK, thank you, Duncan. Dorothy, just really quickly there. I just want to ask you, in 2019, you were quoted as calling Boris Johnson a known liar. Do you think you're responsible as the former head of the broadcaster or the news output for Boris Johnson's desire to privatise Channel 4? I think that that is nothing to do with it. I think that what the proposed privatisation of Channel 4 is all about is throwing a bit of red meat to his right-wing supporters. Uh, it won't make a billion pounds. I think most estimates are it will make half a billion pounds as a one-off payment and the nations and regions of this country will lose out. Well, we shall see. Thank you both very much for your company. That was Dorothy Byrne, former head of Channel 4 News and Current Affairs, and Duncan Simpson from the Taxpayers Alliance. Cheers to both of them. Now, folks, the UK's gambling industry is a multi-billion pound venture, and many of you may be a few quids up after the Grand National yesterday. But sadly, reports suggest some have fallen for the addiction associated with gambling, which in turn affect the health relationship and, of course, their finances. In The Times this morning, an investigation into middle-class gambling addicts reads, get up, log in, play the financial markets and run the risk of losing big fast. Welcome to the world of day traders, so addicted that some need rehab. Also, the UK is now set to ban celebs from gambling adverts in October to try and protect children. I'm delighted to say I'm joined now by Christopher Snowden, who is the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Chris Howie, all of this sounds absolutely terrible, right? We're a nation that's completely addicted to this gambling nonsense, aren't we? You'd think so from reading the newspapers over the course of the last seven, eight years. I mean, there's been a very um, highly 
uh, orchestrated uh, orchestrated attempt to portray Britain as a country in which there's a spiraling problem, gambling epidemic, and children are gambling left, right, and centre, and every, everything's advertised, uh, everything's advertising gambling firms. And, and it's just not true. This message I've been trying to rebut for some time without any success at all, but the statistics are really very clear. We started measuring problem gambling rates in 1999. They have not budged a bit in the 20-odd years since. We have relatively low rates of problem gambling in this country. It averages out about 0.5% of the population. So the vast, vast majority of people who gamble do not become problem gamblers. And we shouldn't confuse problem gambling with gambling addiction, by the way. Gambling addicts, however you might define that, they're a subset of the problem gamblers. Um, The reality is most problem gamblers tend to be men aged between about 18 and 24 mostly and they mostly grow out of it um but yes you always have some level of people who get into trouble with with gambling um as i say mostly they they get out of it by themselves but some people need cognitive behavioral therapy or so on um but what doesn't work is just bringing in all sorts of different rules and regulations around it Uh, if anything it, it tends to drive it underground there is absolutely no correlation if you look worldwide between very strict gambling laws and low rates of problem gambling if anything actually you could say it's it's almost the reverse somewhere like china for example have very high rates of problem gambling about four percent and gambling is almost entirely banned there so, Chris, how would you actually go about uh, tackling the more severe elements then? Or do you actually think that football and other really quite high profile sports have quite a lot to answer for as far as this debate's concerned? No, I think that football has quite a lot to be thankful to, to gambling for. You know, I mean, there's a possibility that gambling sponsorship in sport could be banned because there's a new wave now of uh, anti-gambling agitation after the business with fixed odds betting terminals that you might remember. They've been essentially banned for three years. Nobody's talking about how that's improved anything, incidentally. Um, it's all been forgotten about. They've moved on to the next cause, which is mainly about advertising and, and sponsorship. And uh, it's well acknowledged by anybody who you know, kind of looks at the figures and knows the industry. Yeah, the Premiership will be all right. The Premiership will always be able to find sponsors. But you get below the Premiership Championship right down to the pub pub level, you know, local Sunday football team sponsored by the local brewery, for example. Um, They're looking at, and and indeed sports uh, uh, I'm very fond of, like like snooker, darts, rugby, all sorts of um, sports are... uh, I kept afloat, really, by gambling sponsorship. And people might not like gambling. They might not want to gamble. They might not want to see so many teams sponsored by betting firms. But they put a huge amount of money into these sports. And without them, a lot of these clubs simply will disappear. Certainly in the case of snooker, there will be far fewer tournaments um, than there are at the moment. Um, so if the price of that is just to have somebody's shirt or a, a banner sponsored by a gambling firm, given that there is no evidence whatsoever that seeing gambling sponsorship turns people into problem gamblers or even makes people gamble to start with, it seems to me a pretty good deal. But unfortunately, governments uh, don't really have a lot of time for advertising. It feels like, the to them, it feels like the kind of thing, well, we can get rid of that and it looks like we're doing something about it. Actually, these things come with enormous costs. Yeah, I mean, Chris, what I would say is that I think there's a a creeping element of paternalism. I mean, the Tory party under David Cameron used to say, you know, this Tory's not a nanny. Well, I think it is today because on everything from whether it be smoking, whether it be drinking, whether it be... And by the way, on smoking, the the one thing that we seem absolutely destined to regulate is e-cigarettes, which are surely doing some pretty fantastic work as far as weaning people off the, the nightmare that is tobacco addiction. But do you see this sort of creeping paternalism and does it make you think, well, 
God, why are we doing these sort of authoritarian measures to try and isolate a few problem scenarios? I, th- I think it doesn't really matter what government is in charge. Um, and once a campaign gets going, it might be rebuffed for a while, like with the, the junk food stuff, the, the anti-obesity stuff, you know, the, the which is coming in later this year. We've just had the mandatory calorie labelling, but that really is the least of it. We've got this ban on buy one, get one free, ban on three for two deals. That's going to come in in October when inflation is set to peak. So this is really bad timing. But that's just one of a slew of obesity measures that were kicked down the road by Theresa May uh, from David Cameron and Boris rejected them. Boris decided to bring them in. My point oh, being, Chris, tell me about this. After, you've you've after written about years, this, Chris. This stuff will come in. You've written about this buy one, get one free offer promotion. I want to ask mm. you about that because I think that's really important because you're absolutely right. There are people out there right now that are genuinely having to make a choice between heating power in their homes, putting you know petrol in their cars and buying food in the shops. You're actually saying that the government are going full steam ahead with this, the bans. And there are, Chris, you will know better than I do, but there are rules as well on what you can have near the hills in supermarkets as well so high fat high sugar whatever it is foods you cannot have them anywhere near the front of the shop and one this is causing a hell of a lot of headache for small and medium-sized enterprises but equally it's clobbering people at a time when actually promotions on meat and all these other things would be looked upon in really quite favorably yeah, it's particularly bad timing. But it's, when is a good time to unnecessarily put the price of food up for people? I would say there's never a good time for it. If you look at the Public Health England report from 2015 that first proposed this ban, uh, which of course is designed on getting people you know, eat, eating more healthily, um, Public Health England in the report itself said that in the period just after the financial crisis, a lot of poorer families used these deals as what they called a coping mechanism, a coping strategy. And of course they did. People use you know, bargains in order to deal with um, the cost of living. And the feeling was, I guess, by 2015 as well, inflation's quite low again, so we can get away with, with mm. doing this. Well, as it happens, it's going to come in when inflation's uh, at about 9%, uh, maybe maybe more than that. So, you know, these guys know what's going on here. They know that this you know, puts serious pressure, particularly on low-income families. The reality is that the public health lobby and governments in general don't really care about the cost of living that much. They have other priorities, whether it's net zero or obesity or smoke-free by 2030. These are the things that politicians really care about. And they're quite happy to put up the price of things for other people and then shed some crocodile tears every now and again when inflation gets out of control. Well, the public health officials, or Chris, might turn around and say, well, hang on, because when we're talking about gambling in particular, we're actually seeking to make it so that people aren't exacerbating the cost of living crisis by getting themselves into massive amounts of debt. Yep. Um, and if there was some way of waving a wand and stopping people becoming problem gamblers, then I think most people would support it. But there isn't. You need to have evidence-based policy here. And there is nothing, there is really no evidence at all. The House of Lords Select Committee looked at this uh, only a couple of years ago. They couldn't find any evidence whatsoever that there was any link between gambling sponsorship and gambling-related harm. Same with advertising. That they well, nevertheless supported the ban on sponsorship, although interesting, not on advertising, um, just because they felt, well, there's too many clubs being sponsored by betting firms. I mean, this is no way to run public policy, particularly when that public policy is going to hammer certain uh, sports teams and indeed entire sports by you know, uh, sacrificing a, 
large sums of money. So no, a lot of this, it's an overused word, isn't it? Virtue signaling, you know, um, virtue, the point of virtue signaling is it comes at no cost to you. Well, it will come at cost to somebody down the line. Problem gambling is a psychological problem. It needs to be dealt with by basically by psychologists. The idea that you can use broad brush strategies Bearing in mind that 99.5% of people show no signs of problem gambling, um, it, it just it just doesn't work. You're doing something for the, for the sake of it, and I hope the government sees sense. But I fear that this whipped-up hysteria in the media over a period of many years from a pretty concentrated and well-coordinated uh, group of people, including in the all-party group on gambling-related harm, um, I, I fear that because of this and this myth that we're in a spiralling problem gambling epidemic will make... Uh, politicians feel they need to do something. Well, indeed, we will see Chris Norton, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Thank you very much for your time. It's now 2.47 and it's time for my favourite, actually, folks, which is scrap, reform or keep. I've got my very high budget paddles with me now. And the UK, folks, is set to end the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. It's part of a plan to eradicate the UK's contribution to global CO2 emissions. But is it actually realistic? Can we do it by 2030? I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Quinton Wilson, motor and journalist and electric car expert. Quinton, how realistic? Come on. You've no doubt been out and about in your electric car travelled quite long journeys. How realistic is it, really, to expect us all to go electric by 2030? Or so after 2030? I've been driving electric cars for the last 10 years, starting with these little ones that only did 50 miles to one charge. And if you put the heater on, it would only do 30 miles to one charge. And they work. And here we are now with electric cars that'll do 250, 300 miles to one charge. So the technology has really accelerated over the last five, six years, and it works, it's viable. I've driven to France and back um, uh, 700 odd miles and, and, and it works. So what we have to say is now we have this technology, it's time to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. And we've got this huge body of evidence, haven't we, from people like the Royal College of Surgeons who say that we've got 40,000 premature deaths due to respiratory problems because of the, the polluted air in our cities. And we know that diesel particularly causes lung disease, heart disease, and, and, and cancer. So as a civilized first world society, we've got to do something about that. Because if we've always done what we've always done, we'll always get what we'll always get, which is polluted air. And it has to change. So it is viable. And the prices of electric cars will come down. Experts say that probably by 20, 2024, 2025, we'll have parity with electric cars and combustion cars. So we can do it. And then we, we know about energy security with the Ukraine. We simply cannot carry on shackling ourselves to foreign oil cartels who don't care about the prices going down. All they care about is the prices going up. And yes. we could be looking at the three pound litre of de diesel or petrol. So we have to do something about this. It's a real imperative. Quinton, I accept that. I accept that we need energy security. I've been arguing that we need this for some time on this channel. But Looking at the fact that, you know, the manufacturing of these electric cars primarily were dependent upon China. So aren't we just saying, look, let's wean ourselves off of whether it be Saudi or Russia for oil and gas. And let's instead make ourselves entirely beholden upon President Xi. 
Right now, Darren, you're right, the Chinese have, have got a monopoly on the supply of things like cobalt and, uh, and lithium and graphite and stuff like that. But that's all changing. I mean, in, in America, Tesla have managed to get lithium out of, out of the desert in Nevada um, and, and doing it just through water purification. So all that supply chain of getting that stuff will change. We, for instance, are using far less cobalt in car batteries now than we ever used to. And some car batteries don't have any cobalt at all. So what we've got to do is rather than say, well, look, China's got it, so let's carry on buying oil, is we have to sort those supply chains out and where those, those precious metals those critical minerals come from and actually establish an industry here in the UK and in Europe where we are self-sufficient. So the Chinese argument doesn't hold because that's all changing. So as far as scrap reform keep is concerned, I'm assuming that you're very much in the keep camp. Yeah, because we need to think about the public health considerations of carrying on polluting like this. And don't forget, you won't be able to uh, buy a brand new uh, combustion car or, or van uh, after 2030 and hybrids after 2035. But you could continue running your, your, your combustion car for as long as you want. But we've got to tell the manufacturers that this is the line they're going to have to take so they can make business plans and they can invest and we can have cleaner air and energy security and better public health. It's, it, it's as simple as that. Okie dokie. Well, Quinton Wilson, you'll have to do a little bit more to convince me. I'm almost there, but a little bit more and I'll be right there with you. Motor and journalist and electric car expert, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to Real Britain, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, leave us a comment. I'll see you next time for more Real Britain.